Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Our guest today is Alina Toplinski. Alina is the deputy leader of the firm's energy industry group and also the lead partner on Pillsbury's international nuclear projects team. Alina has worked on energy projects in more than 30 countries around the world and is currently advising clients on a number of cutting-edge issues in the energy space, such as advanced nuclear reactor development, hydrogen production, and coal repowering. Alina is an advisor to the Clean Air Task Force and the co-chair of the World Nuclear Association's Law Working Group. Welcome to our podcast, Alina. Hi, Joe. Thanks very much for inviting me to be here today. Look forward to the discussion. With climate change and sustainability dominating the environmental landscape, there's been a lot of press in the past year or two about the energy transition. What exactly is the energy transition and why is it so important? So the energy transition can generally be defined as the pathway towards the transformation of the global energy sector. And that transformation is from fossil-based systems of energy production consumptions to zero carbon. And the timeline is generally by the second half of the century. Um, So the key is to reduce energy-related carbon emissions in order to limit climate change. Why is this important? You may be familiar with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They've issued a number of reports about global warming and how we're doing with meeting the climate change initiatives um, that the world has been working on now for more than a decade. In 2018, um, there was a watershed moment when they issued a report basically stating that global warming is accelerating at levels that are, have really not been estimated before. So the report said that global warming is accelerating to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And those levels can be reached by 2029 without major cuts in carbon emissions. And even worse, a two degrees Celsius increase above pre-industrial levels would be met by 2050. Now, what do these degree increases mean? If you look at what's been happening over the past decade, what we've been seeing with already only a one degree Celsius of warming have been natural disasters, so hurricanes, storms, heat waves, you know, forest fires, floods. Just think of the number of hurricanes we've seen, for example. Uh, think of the forest fires, the wildfires in California. You know, there are fires raging in Brazil just this week. So these climate change-related risks um, to human health, to food security, to water supply, to economic growth will all increase. And there are a number of sectors that are the main contributors to global warming, and the energy sector is one of them. So the energy transition um, reflects and understands that the change really has to be dramatic and quick. Now, the energy transition has to be a worldwide phenomenon. It can't just be limited to a number of countries that are most supportive of it. And the most challenging uh, geographical area are emerging markets, because that's where the growth is, right? That These are the markets that uh, really need uh, growth in electrification. Um, they need to be able to meet the needs of their industry, 
of the emerging economies. And at the same time, they're the most impacted by climate change. And in many cases, really the least able to afford its consequences. So for the developing world, you need to have an energy transition that is not just climate focused, but also sustainable, that are going to meet these industrial and growth needs. I know the world's energy mix has changed only slightly in the past 50 years, with a modest decrease in dependence on oil being offset primarily by increases in natural gas and coal. But many experts see this year's dramatic drop in carbon emissions due to lockdowns and other pandemic-related issues as a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the transition to succeed and to avoid a return to the pre-pandemic energy mix. Do you see that playing out in the real world in matters you're handling for clients? And also, I know there's obviously a significant role to be played by governments, so maybe you can talk about that as well. These are good questions, and this is a topic of much discussion in the energy sector today. Um, So most people will recognize that the global pandemic will give us some ideas of what the future of the energy sector may look like. Because obviously, as you've noted, uh, we're decreasing emissions because there's a decreased use of industry, of of transportation, of other carbon-emitting activities. And some people have noticed less pollution, you know, bluer skies, cleaner oceans. And the question is, you know, will this continue? One, is there, you know, a real impact right now um, on climate change? And two, will that impact continue? There have been various studies and and a number of opinions because this has only been playing out for a couple of months. Um, There there are several studies that looked at uh, the impact of the pandemic as well as the impact being amplified by what's going to happen with financial markets, with industry growth. And generally, the consensus is that there is going to be some sort of climate change reduction as a result of the pandemic. But the question is really whether that change is sufficient. So if you look at something like uh, a metric of 8% reduction by 2050, uh, that's not really sufficient to keep below the 1.5 degree target. We would really need to repeat the decline that we're experiencing right now in 2020 from every year on through 2050. So the, the change needs to be uh, in fact, greater than the one that we're seeing now. That's, I think that's the general consensus, although there, there are various opinions because there's so many factors involved. Uh, but I think there's also a general consensus that the pandemic gives us an opportunity to reset and to build a sustainable energy transition. You know, already governments, in many ways, in partnership with businesses, with civil society, are looking at how to build back a better economy once the pandemic is over. And there are, of course, many efforts for an economic stimulus for that recovery. The consensus is generally across a number of countries that that recovery has to be compatible with sustainable growth and energy transition. So that recovery has to come with climate change goals in mind. One good example is the European Green Deal. That's something that was launched by the European Commission uh, at the end of last year. It basically puts together a framework of laws and regulations that are aimed at achieving the EU's target of net zero carbon emissions, which is by 2050. And the EU in the shorter term is looking at a 50 to 55 percent cut in emissions uh, by 2030 from 1990 levels. 
we've increasingly seen a number of stakeholders, uh, whether it's the governments themselves, the businesses, the financial community, climate change advocates calling for the Green Deal to be used as a framework to tackle long-term sustainability goals while meeting the short-term economic needs um, arising out of the pandemic and you know, in general needed to propel economies forward. If we look at the U.S., for example, you know, there is no consensus yet on you know, a specific kind of a green deal or a clean energy deal. But if you look at the various legislative proposals, as well as um, the funding um, that's been uh, given out by various government agencies like the Department of Energy, there's really bipartisan support for clean energy transition. So whether it's something like advanced nuclear reactor development and demonstration, you know, that's been very bipartisan, things like alternative fuel, clean hydrogen, uh, green ammonia production, you're looking at energy storage technology, how we can improve that, make that more efficient, you know, cost effective, robust, carbon removal of sequestration. So there are all of these areas that, you know, maybe a decade ago, Republicans Democrats really didn't agree on a lot of these issues, and now they do. And if you look at the private sector, you know, for us in particular, um, as part of the energy industry team, we represent a number of electric utilities at Pillsbury, you know, whether in the U.S. or overseas. And most of these utilities, they have a fleet with mixed fossils, nuclear renewables, And in the U.S., for example, most of the largest investor-owned utilities have released carbon reduction plans. So utilities are working on plans to reach these targets now. They're looking at innovative technologies like advanced nuclear, which I mentioned earlier, and hydrogen production, renewables and energy storage, carbon capture uh, sequestration. and, and hydrogen in particular is really interesting because there, there are a number of utilities that have pilot projects uh, to produce hydrogen from either renewables or nuclear power, which is green hydrogen. And it's a really interesting trend of utilities getting into the sector that was previously dominated by oil companies and not so focused on uh, you know, on producing hydrogen using clean energy resources. How is that relevant to the pandemic? Well, all of these projects, they are not just going on, they're accelerating. You know, there are more and more projects that are appearing. So that really presents you know, a very positive trend. Hopefully, the pandemic has given us the realization that you know, energy transition is important. It needs to be accelerated, and it can be done in a way that will help economies grow and help businesses grow. And with all those opportunities, Alina, it sounds like it might be a good time to be a lender or other financier in the energy sector to help facilitate the transition. Can you tell us about that? That's absolutely right, Joel. That's usually where the first question, right? Where are we going to get the money, uh, you know, to accelerate the transition? You know, how is it going to be financed? There is really a worldwide recognition today that climate change presents huge financial risks to the global economy. And that really starts at the government level. Um, and, you know, the government push is important for the private sector as well. So if you look at, you know, really the multilateral level, um, they've all adopted these platforms uh, to incorporate climate change initiatives into their portfolios. 
and you know the government incentives that are being provided you know by every government that is looking at this issue are generally very much aligned with climate change goals. In addition to that, you know, you've got kind of private markets, right? Uh, you know, one good example um, is investment to offshore wind. That's completely skyrocketed in the past year or two. Uh, I think in 2019 alone, uh, there was $30 billion worth of investing and lending to offshore wind projects. And that's worldwide, including Asia, these big offshore wind projects in Taiwan, in China, and off the coast of uh, you know, European nations like you know UK, France, and the Netherlands. And then when you're looking at equity, um, you know, there's a significant pressure from investors for private equity to change direction and pivot to uh, climate change friendly investments. So, you know, one good example is the world's largest asset manager. And they announced in January of this year that they will now make climate change central to their investment considerations. Um, even on a larger scale, um, there is a group that um, requires investors to voluntarily sign on to a statement uh, that has a number of climate change environmental commitments. To date, that statement has been signed by more than 500 investors from across a dozen countries, which collectively manage almost $50 trillion in assets. So that's really aggressive. I mean, that's, that's literally the financial community telling industry, you know, you've got to meet these climate change objectives and you've got to do it in the short term. Otherwise, we may not, you know, invest into or lend to your projects. And last but not least, one interesting area is angel investors. Um, that's where a lot of money for startup technologies is coming from. Groups of angel investors that are coming together to to work on and invest into uh, new uh, disruptive technologies in the energy sector. And you're seeing a lot of that with venture capital as well. It's a very interesting movement in the financial market. And you know, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see what happens in the next couple of years. Alina, thank you for such an enlightening discussion on this very much in the news topic affecting the energy industry. It's been great chatting with you today, and I've really learned a lot on this subject. Thanks very much, Joel. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation as well, and I really appreciate you inviting me to be on this podcast. And now it's time for This Week in History. There are still a number of things that link almost all Americans to one another. And this week, we can point to something we will all remember from our childhood school days. Because no matter when or where you went to school, public or private, large or small, urban or rural, we all share common learning experiences. And one of those is the age of exploration. A little over 500 years ago, this week was a monster week for Spain and a couple of its bold sea captains, one Spanish and one Portuguese. On September 25th in 1513, Vasco Nunez de Balboa became the first European to see the Pacific Ocean when he crossed the Panama Isthmus. This eventually led to Spain's exploration of the western coast of South America and indirectly the rich Latin and Spanish heritage we love throughout that continent. It also proved that there was an ocean to be explored to the east of the European continent. And just about six years later, on September 20th in 1519, Ferdinand Magellan, following Balboa's trailblazing, 
set off for what became the first successful circumnavigation of the globe and became the first European to cross the Pacific Ocean. And although Magellan didn't survive what ended up being a three-year journey, his expedition proved that the world could be circled by sea and that our planet was much larger than had previously been believed. Today, we take travel for granted. We buy products and eat foods from around the world without even pausing to think how amazing that is. And of course, we do big business with one another across thousands of miles. And we get impatient whenever there's a slight delay in our plans. But try to imagine for a moment the challenges people faced in the 1500s. It reminds us that in facing the daunting issues of today, and there certainly are many, there will always be people with bold ideas, ingenuity, and drive, capable of overcoming the odds and achieving great and wonderful things. That's all for today. See you next time, and thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.